Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, 2 Kings chapters 17 and 18. As we resume our study of uh, 2 Kings, let's review a little bit. We're in chapter 17. And at the time, this was at the time when the northern kingdom called itself Israel and alternatively Ephraim. The kingdom that was begun by Jeroboam after Solomon's death, the northern kingdom, has just come to an end. To the south of Israel lay Judah, which was still being ruled by the descendants of David. Now, the northern kingdom is usually said to be the territory of ten tribes. See the Jordan River here, ten tribes. And that eventually gave way to the legend, of course, of the ten lost tribes. But in fact, it consisted of seven tribes, plus about half the clans of Manasseh. We get to the number ten when we add in some other Israelite tribes that lived on the east side of the Jordan River, the tribes of Gad and Reuben and half of the clans are of, of Manasseh. These two and a half tribes, as they're usually called, were not actually part of that northern kingdom, but they did firmly ally and identify themselves with the northern kingdom. Thus, even four nations of that era saw these Transjordanian Israelite tribes as being part of that northern kingdom. And this explains why when Hosea, the latest and what would prove to be the last and final king of Israel, when he rebelled against his master, Assyria, King Shalmaneser of Assyria attacked Israel in response. Well, it was those two and a half tribes on the east bank of the Jordan River that he attacked and conquered first. So the northern kingdom was no more. The ten tribes were sent to far-flung settlements in the vast Assyrian Empire. And some years, after some years had passed, settlers from various other conquered nations were sent to the former Israelite territory to repopulate it. This was the way that Assyria controlled their empire. It broke down the social fabric of nations and kingdoms it had overrun by deporting the bulk of the indigenous population and then bringing in people from other lands. It was a kind of geopolitical musical chairs. And truth be told, this system worked quite well in keeping the citizens of Assyria quiet and unable to fight back. Now Judah found itself unconquered, but it was dependent upon the imperial power of Assyria. This had been agreed to by King Ahaz of Judah in exchange for his retaining his throne. The usual vassal arrangement whereby Ahaz was subservient to the king of Assyria and Judah was required to send regular shipments of tribute to Assyria in order to maintain that arrangement. Not only did this severely damage Judah's economy, but it brought great shame 
upon the Jews of Judah that they would be under the control of a heathen authority. So, with that, let's reread a portion of 2 Kings 17 to establish a basis for today's lesson. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, please turn to page 422. 422. We're going to start reading at verse uh, 24. The king of Asher, Assyria, brought people from Babel, Kutah, Ava, Hamat, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Shomron, in place of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. When they first came to live there, they did not fear Adonai. Therefore Adonai sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they went to the king of Asher. The nations you carried away and settled in the cities of Samaria aren't familiar with the rules for worshipping the god of the land. Therefore he sent lions among them, and they are there killing them, because they're not familiar with the rules for worshipping the god of the land. In response, the king of Assyria gave this order. Take back one of the Kohanim, one of the priests you brought from there. Have him go and live there and have him teach them the rules for worshipping the god of the land. So one of the priests they had carried away captive from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and he taught them how they should fear Adonai. Nevertheless, every nation made gods of their own, put them in the temples on the high places which the Sumerians had made, every nation in the cities where they lived. Thus the people from Babel made Sukkot Benot, those from Kutah made Nergal, those from Hamat made Ashma, the uh, Avim made Nifchaz and Tartak, and the Sevarvim burned up their children in the fire as, they, as sacrifices to Adramalech and Anamalech the gods of the Sepharim. So they feared Adonai while at the same time they appointed for themselves priests from among themselves to preside at the high places and they would sacrifice for them in the temples on the high places. They both feared Adonai and served their own gods in the customary manner among the nations from which they had been taken away. To this day they continue to follow their former pagan customs. They don't fear Adonai. They don't follow the regulations and rulings, Torah or mitzvah, from uh, which Adonai ordered the descendants of Jacob, to whom he gave the name Israel, with whom Adonai had made a covenant, and charged them, do not fear other gods or bow down to them. Serve them or sacrifice to them. On the contrary, you are to fear Adonai, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and outstretched arm. Worship him. Sacrifice to him. You are to observe forever the laws and rulings, Torah and commandments which he wrote for you. You are not to fear other gods. You are not to forget the covenant I made with you. No, you must not fear other gods, but must fear Adonai your God. Then he will rescue you from the power of all your enemies. However, they didn't listen. They followed their old practices. So these nations mixed fearing uh, nations mixed fearing Adonai with serving their carved idols, likewise their children, and to this day their descendants do the same as their ancestors did. Now in verse 24, we get an abbreviated record of some of the people who were sent to Israel to repopulate it. And we're going to see that rather than call the area of repopulation Israel or the Northern Kingdom, the ancient editor, this is key, 
ancient editor of 2 Kings used the term Samaria. And while the city of Samaria had been the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel since the exile of the ten tribes, the term Samaria came to be used to describe a general region. That ex- Here's Samaria, the city, that ex- came to be called a general region that extended for many miles in all directions from the city of Samaria. By Yeshua's day, some 700 years later, Samaria was still a prominent name. And it was even adopted by the Roman Empire as the name for one of the provinces of the former Holy Land, which it now controlled. And by the way, just to confuse things a little bit, somehow, when Bible translators translated to English the Hebrew term for the people who inhabited Samaria, a T got added. And the result was that the English Bible calls these people Samaritans instead of Samarians. Thus, in the famous Bible story of the Good Samaritan, it really ought to be called the Good Samarian. A Samaritan and a Samarian then are the same thing. They're residents of Samaria. You with me? Now, we need to note that there is a significant time lag between the end of verse 23 and the start of verse 24 in chapter 17. Several years passed, actually. How many years is difficult to discern, but probably around a decade. Now, one must understand that even though the accepted date of the conquering and the exile of the northern kingdom is 722 or 723 BC, that doesn't mean that all the Hebrews were expelled and sent to the Assyrian Empire at the same time. They were sent away in groups over a period of several years. So there wasn't a mass overnight exodus like when the Hebrews left Egypt. Rather, it was like a balloon slowly deflating. The Hebrew population decreased steadily. And then at some point, the Assyrian authorities decided it was time to start bringing in some colonists from other conquered territories to make good use of the former Israelite kingdom. By now, King Shalmaneser of Assyria, who had conquered Israel, was dead. The new king was Esar Hadon. And it was during Esar Hadon's administration that foreigners from Babylon and Kuta and Ava and Hamat and Sepharvaim were forcibly moved from their home nations to the territory of Samaria. Now, briefly, the name Babylon is referring to uh, not to the city of Babylon, but rather to the nation, to the kingdom of Babylon. Kuta was a tiny nation that lay about 15 miles northeast of the city of Babylon. Ava was a city on the Euphrates River that was near a place called Havor. Hamat is in Syria. And Sepharvim is Sipporah. Now, Sepharvaim is a plural word. It means two cities or, or, or twin cities. And indeed, Sipporah, the southernmost city of Mesopotamia, occupied both banks of the Euphrates River. It was generally people from these places that were sent to occupy Samaria, that and then from Hamath area of Syria. 
But what we find in verse 25 is that naturally these people brought their gods and god systems with them to Samaria. As inflexible as Assyria was about deporting people from their homelands, their policy was to be tolerant in allowing people to retain the worship of their own national gods. The Assyrian religion was not forced upon them. Thus we're told they didn't fear Jehovah. Now this is a good place to pause and explain a phrase that we hear over and over, especially in the Old Testament. And that phrase is, to fear one God or another. In Hebrew, the word is yare, yare. And while the English translation to the word fear is not wrong per se, it has to be taken in the old English sense, not in the modern English sense. That is, to fear a king or a god meant to show respect and reverence. Thus, in modern Christianese, we rightly say that to fear a god generally means to worship that god, observe that god's rules and regulations. This is not about being scared of that god or walking around in terror of that god. That said, ancient Middle Eastern societies firmly believed in these gods and they were leery of them because everybody knew that a god or a goddess who took a dislike to you could cause you a lot of trouble and discomfort. So when we are told that these new colonists in Samaria didn't fear the God of Israel, it simply means they, they didn't show respect to him by worshiping him as they did their many other gods. But they did fully accept the universally held belief of that era that all nations and kingdoms had their own individual gods. Thus when lions began attacking the new settlers of Samaria, of course they saw this as an act of vengeance from the local deity, a deity that they knew nothing about. And in fact, they were right. It was Jehovah who allowed the growing lion population to attack the new folks. And while we're talking about lions, let me point out that at one time, indeed, the entire region of Canaan was lion territory. Lions were always a problem for the Israelites. However, as the Hebrew population grew and settled in villages and cities, the lion habitat was encroached upon. Lions were hunted and killed, and so the lion population was greatly controlled and diminished. But since the exile of those ten tribes, the lion population became less threatened by its only real predator, humans. And so the number of lions went through an explosive growth period. Well, the settlers figured that the problem was they weren't worshipping the god of the land of Samaria. And that was because they didn't know how. They didn't know anything about Jehovah. So, Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, agreed to return one of the exiled Hebrew priests to Samaria so that he could teach the people how to worship this unknown God. Now, notice how verse 28 explains 
that this Hebrew priest went to live in Bethel. Bethel. Bethel was one of the two cult cities of the religion of the northern kingdom as established by King Jeroboam in the late 900s BC, the other cult site being in the northern city of Dan. What we need to grasp is that although this priest was a Hebrew, he was not a Levite priest. Rather, this was one of the priests of the golden calf cult. Recall that King Jeroboam had two golden calf images built. And then he declared that these were images of Jehovah, God of Israel. So since more than two centuries had passed, since the people of the northern kingdom had begun worshipping these golden calves as the gods of Israel, it was assumed by all the surrounding foreign nations that this was the legitimate religion of the Hebrews. It's not unlike how many people around the world in our day who are Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu see Catholicism and the Pope as representative of all Christianity. So while on the surface, I don't know, it seems like a pretty good thing that a Hebrew priest would be given the mission of teaching the new foreign colonists of Samaria about the God of Israel. In fact, what he taught them was the apostate religion of Jeroboam, the golden calf religion. And the result is what one might expect. Since a golden calf image was used as a supposedly legitimate idol of Jehovah, the foreign settlers worshipped it, as well as all the images of their own gods they brought with them. And there's no evidence that the Hebrew priest of Bethel discouraged them from doing that since that was essentially the way the system had worked for the ten northern tribes anyway. So the settlers reused the high places that the people of the northern tribes had built and they worshipped their various gods there. We're told that the Babylonians made Sukkot Benot. Now while some Bibles imply that Sukkot Benot is a god, in fact there's no ancient evidence of a god of that name. Further, in Hebrew, that phrase means something like booths of the daughters. Many reliable archaeologists and Assyriologists think that what this is indicating isn't the name of a god, but rather that structures called Sukkot, Benot, were built to house the idol of a god or a goddess. And the best guess is that since it was a god worshipped by daughters, females, the god was likely Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility. The settlers from Kuta made Nergal. This was the Babylonian god of the plague, lord of the underworld, land of the dead. So it was a religion in honor of a death cult. The Syrians from Hamat made Ashmah, and the ancient rabbis say that this was a god represented by a male goat. The people from Ava worshipped Nechaz and Tartak. Nechaz was the form of a dog. Tartak, the form of a donkey. But the worst of all was the deity of the people from Sepharvaim who sacrificed their children as burnt offerings to gods they called Adramalech and Anamalech. Well, verse 32 and 33 explains that they appointed priests from among themselves 
to do their sacrificing for them at these many high places. And at the same time, they worshipped Jehovah God of Israel. The editor of 2 Kings explains in verse 34 that still in his time the colonists behave this way. They do the rituals that the Hebrew priest of the golden calf cult taught them. But they don't follow the ways of the Torah or of God's commandments. Now that sounds a little bit confusing, if not contradictory, until one understands the history of the Sumerians. So from here forward to the end of the chapter, we get statements from the Lord admonishing these people for not following His laws and commandments and for them worshipping other gods instead of worshipping Him and Him alone. He reminds them they were under the covenant God made with them and that covenant prohibited them from worshipping other gods. Now, here's the thing. I thought the people who were doing all of this mixed up worship were Gentile settlers forcibly brought to Samaria by Assyria's king. Why would God say that these people had been his covenant people and now they weren't obeying his covenant? The answer is there was a remaining remnant of the ten tribes still living in Samaria and they readily mixed themselves with these foreign colonists. These Israelites became racially, ethnically, and spiritually mixed with these foreign Gentiles. We know that even in Jesus' day, many Sumerians insisted that they were Israelites despite their aberrant religious beliefs and worship practices. This is why we are told in the New Testament that the Sumerians, the Samaritans, were despised by the Jews. And the Galileans too, for that matter. The Sumerians were a mixed breed, dating back to the exact time we're talking about in 2 Kings 17. This is when it all started. But what galled the Galileans and the Judeans to the point of hatred was that these Sumerians claimed to be the legitimate Hebrews and that the perverted religion they practiced was the real and legitimate Hebrew religion as opposed to the one that was practiced at Jerusalem in the Holy Temple. Now, I would like to hold this up as a good, however not precise, illustration of where the Ecclesia of Christ has arrived in the 21st century AD. The bulk of Christianity, as did the Sumerians, completely denies the Torah of God. Denies that Israel is God's covenant people. Denies that God's laws and commandments are relevant to us. Further, there is an implied, if not outright defined, church doctrine that says that the God of the Old Testament of the Hebrews is a fundamentally different God than the God of the New Testament and of the Gentiles. We have, as did the Sumerians, abandon God's observances, His appointed times, such as Sabbath, such as His seven biblical feasts, and we've created new ones that were born of pagan cults and practices. It's common for laymen and church authorities to admit 
that while it is historically undeniable that things like bunnies and fir trees were the core of heathen worship rituals nowhere present in the biblical worship and in fact were expressly prohibited by the law of Moses that by incorporating those same things in our modern worship and observances we've cleansed them we've Christianized them in the name of Jesus that is what the Hebrews of Jeroboam's golden calf cult claimed that is what the Sumerians claimed and God judged them terribly for it wake up church wake up we are in great danger and we can't be in God's will when we follow those same ways for no other reason than we like them because those customs have become embedded in our society and in our family to say they are harmless or they're just for fun or that because God is love he understands you know that might satisfy our desire to rationalize the truth and therefore not have to face a change but the Lord despises those things there's going to be a price to pay Christian or not if Jehovah was willing to exile his own chosen people cause them to suffer greatly for their apostasy why would we think that we're going to get a pass for behaving essentially the same way let's move on to 2 Kings 18 2 Kings 18 page 423 if you have a complete Jewish Bible it was in the third year of Hosea the son of Elah king of Israel that Hiskiel the son of Ahaz king of Judah began his reign he was 25 years old when he began his reign and he ruled for 29 years in Jerusalem. his mother's name was Avi the daughter of Zechariah he did what was right from Adonai's perspective following the example of everything David his ancestor had done he removed the high places he smashed the standing stones cut down the Asherah broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made because in those days the people of Israel were making offerings to it calling it Nehushtan he put his trust in Adonai, the God of Israel. After him, there was no one like him amongst all the kings of Judah, nor had there been among those before him. For he clung to Adonai. He did not leave off following him, but he obeyed his commandments, which Adonai had given to Moses. So Adonai was with him. And whenever he went out to battle, he did well. He rebelled against the king of Asher, and he refused to be his vassal. He drove the Philistines back to Gaza, and he laid waste to their territory from the watchtower to the fortified city. It was in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Asher, advanced against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, they captured it. That is, Samaria was captured in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel.
The king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and settled them in Halah, in Habor, on the Gozon River, and in the cities of the Medes. This happened because they did not heed the voice of Adonai their God. They violated his covenant. Everything that Moses, a servant of Adonai, had ordered them to do, they would neither hear it nor do it. And in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, advanced against all the fortified cities of Judah and he captured them. Hiskiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Asher at Lachish. I've done wrong. If you will go away from me, I'll pay you whatever penalty you impose upon me. The king of Asher imposed on Hiskiah a penalty of ten tons of silver and a ton of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that could be found in the house of Adonai and in the treasuries of the royal palace. It was at that time that Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the sanctuary of Adonai, from the doorposts which Hezekiah king of Judah himself had overlaid and gave it to the king of Asher. From Lachish, this king of Asher sent Tartan, Rav Saris, and Rav Shakeh to king Hezekiah in Jerusalem with a large army. They advanced and they came to Jerusalem. And upon arrival, they came and positioned themselves by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which is by the road to the launderer's field. They summoned the king. But those answering the call were Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of all the household, Shevna, the general secretary, and Yoach, the son of Asaph, the foreign minister. Rav Shakeh addressed them. Tell Hezekiah, here's what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. What makes you so confident? Do you think that mere spoken words can, uh, can constitute strategy and strength for battle? In whom then are you trusting when you rebel against me like this? Now look, relying on Egypt is like using a broken stick as a staff. When you lean on it, it punctures your hand. That's what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is like for anyone who puts his trust in him. But if you tell me we trust in Adonai our God, then isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, telling Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? All right then, make a wager with my lord, the king of Asher. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can even find enough riders for them. How then can you repulse even one of my master's lowest ranked army officers? Yet, you're relying on Egypt for chariots and riders. Do you think I've come up to this place to destroy it without Adonai's approval? Adonai said to me, attack this land and destroy it. Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Yoach said to Rav Shekeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak with us in Hebrew while the people on the wall are listening. But Rav Shekeh answered them, Did my master send me to deliver my message just to your master and yourselves? Didn't he send me to address the men sitting on the wall who, like you, are going to soon be eating their own dung and drinking their own urine? Then Rav Shekeh stood up and speaking loudly in Hebrew said, Hear what this great king, the king of Asher, says. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He won't be able to save you from the power of the king of Assyria. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in Adonai by saying Adonai will surely save us. This city will not be given over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. 
surrender to me. Then every one of you can eat from his vine and fig tree and drink the water in his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land with grain and wine, a land with bread and vineyards, a land with olive trees and honey, so that you can live and not die. Don't listen to Hezekiah. He's only deluding you when he says, Adonai will save us. Has any god of any nation ever saved his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharim, Hena, and Ivah? Did they save Samaria from my power? Where is the god of any country that has saved his country from my power so that Adonai might be able to save Jerusalem from my power? But the people kept still and didn't answer him so much as a word, for the king's order was, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the household, Shebna, the general secretary, and Yoach, the son of Asaph, the foreign minister, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and reported to him what Rav Shekeh had said. Now the past several chapters have alternated between focusing on the northern kingdom and then on the southern kingdom. That more or less comes to an end with chapter 18 because the northern kingdom has succumbed to its apostasy and unfaithfulness and has been exiled to Assyria. All that remains of the Hebrews living in the promised land now is Judah. But they are living there on borrowed time. They are under the thumb of the king of Assyria as a vassal state. The chapter opens by explaining that Judah had just crowned a new king, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz. And as the usual means of synchronizing the reigns between the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, we're told that Hezekiah began his reign over Judah in the third year that Hosea was king of Israel. Now, Hezekiah means strength of God. And it is a most appropriate name for this reformer. Hezekiah quickly proved to be the antithesis of his father Ahaz. 25 years old when he took the throne. Hezekiah proved to be a righteous king and would do all he could to right the wrongs of his apostate predecessor. He ruled for 29 years. Now, Hezekiah was a throwback from the recent long line of wicked kings and he compares favorably with his ancestor David. What made David so great in God's eyes was certainly not a lack of sinful behavior. Rather, it was his determination to resist idolatry. David did not permit idol worship in his kingdom. Nor did he worship other gods himself. His chaos was cut from the same mold. He was not perfect. And he would succumb to some of his fears. But he resisted worshiping other gods and he did not tolerate it in his kingdom. I think it's difficult to find a more striking contrast between a son and his father than between Hezekiah and Ahaz. Recall that Ahaz was a blasphemous king that openly denied the sovereignty of Jehovah. Now perhaps the most defining of the several moments of apostasy that Ahaz committed is recorded in Isaiah 7. Let's go there now for a refresher. Turn your Bibles just 
shortly over to Isaiah chapter 7. Just a few pages over if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going, going to uh, go to page uh, 446. 446. We're just going to read seven or eight verses starting at verse 3. Then Adonai said to Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shar Yashuv, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the road to Launder's field, and say to him, Take care to stay calm and be unafraid. Don't be demoralized by these two smoldering stumps of firewood, by the blazing anger of Retzin and Aram, the son of Ramalia, or because Aram, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have been plotting against you, thinking, we will invade Judah, tear it apart, divide it among ourselves, and appoint the son of Tabel as king there. Because this is what Adonai says. It won't occur. It won't happen. Because the head of Aram is Damasek, and the head of of Damasek, Damascus, is Retzin. In 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, will be broken and it will cease to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Without firm faith, you will not be firmly established. Adonai spoke again to Achaz and he said, Ask Adonai your God to give you a sign. Ask it anywhere. From the depths of Sheol to the heights above, but Ahaz answered, I won't ask. I won't test Adonai. The situation was that King Ahaz and Judah were under threat of attack from Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, who unbelievably were allies at this time. And together they were fully capable of doing what they said they'd do tear Judah apart and divide it between themselves. Ahaz was trying to decide what to do. And he had determined that he would go to Assyria for help. But the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz with a message of mercy and deliverance. The Lord himself would intervene. He would stop the evil alliance from succeeding in their plans to destroy Judah and depose Ahaz. But when God wanted an acknowledgement from Ahaz that he would choose the path of relying on Jehovah for the salvation of Judah, Ahaz flatly refused. As is stated in Isaiah 7 verses 10 and 11, Adonai spoke again to Ahaz and he said, Ask Adonai to give you a sign. Ask it anywhere from the depths of Sheol to the heights above. In other words, anything, anything. Ask for any sign. And Ahaz answered, I won't. I won't ask. But King Ahaz had a stark choice sitting before him. Submit to Adonai and be saved by the power and the word of God. Or, submit to heathen Assyria and be subjugated. 2 Kings 16 records that his choice was an irrational refusal to accept God's offer of mercy and instead he went to an enemy for help. 2 Kings 16, 7 and 8 says this, Then Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath Pilas, or king of Assyria, with this message, I am your servant and your son. Come up, save me from the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. 
Akaz took the silver and gold that was in the house of Adonai and in the treasures of the royal palace and he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. The result was that Assyria attacked, uh, rather uh, accepted Ahaz's offer of putting Judah under Assyria's control. And Assyria indeed attacked, uh, rather Assyria indeed attacked Syria on Judah's behalf. And that stopped the attack on Judah in his tracks. But the consequences for Judah for rejecting God and for creating this unholy alliance, well, especially on a spiritual level, it was catastrophic. But now, several years later, in his mercy, God has raised up a good king for Judah, his Kiel. And as we read in 2 Kings 18.4, that in addition to removing all of the high places around Judah, where improper worship was taking place, he also had all the pagan religious pillars, all the Asherah trees cut down. But then we hear that he also destroyed the ancient pole with the bronze serpent on it that Moses had constructed 600 years earlier out in the wilderness. Why would Hezekiah destroy such a sacred object? these Israelites, one that the Lord himself ordered constructed to counteract a plague of snake bites. First, it's surprising to learn that some of those wandering Israelites had apparently carried that pole around with them long after its purpose was finished. Second is that what is even more surprising, they had given the pole a name. Nehushtan, and they had begun praying to it, begun worshiping it as an idol. However, it is equally clear that they didn't worship as a worship it as an alternative god, but rather they worshipped it as an object holy to the God of Israel. Is all that so wrong? Well, what a great object lesson we have here. The Bible lists many objects that both Christians and Jews have taken well beyond their intent and purpose and status. St. Christopher's medals. Statues of Mary and Jesus. Perhaps even Calvary's cross. It just goes to show that because God creates an object for a purpose or a common object winds up getting used for a divine purpose. That does not render the object itself divine. Nor does it indicate that the object has inherent and independent power of its own. The pole with the brazen serpent was intended by Jehovah for a one-time only use. But many Hebrews decided that the results were so stunning it must have some kind of a magical power within it. And the pole upon which hung that healing serpent was a divine image. Or even itself, it was intrinsically divine. So they kept it generation after generation after generation and they worshipped before it. Practically every Christian commentator 
compares Christ's cross with the pole where the serpent hung. In fact, Messiah Yeshua did it too. Everyone who was saved on account of Jesus probably knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only and unique Son so that everyone who trusts in Him may have eternal life instead of being utterly destroyed. However, what Yeshua said in conjunction with that statement, just two verses earlier, ought to be seared in our minds. In the two previous verses, he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who trusts in Him may have eternal life. Hmm. See, Jesus Christ made His own comparison between the bronze serpent and its wooden pole and the wooden pole that He would have to be lifted up upon, the cross of crucifixion. And he certainly didn't do it in a negative fashion. But I wonder, what will he say when he returns? And he points out that the device of his execution has become the chief symbol of our faith in him, in both Orthodox and Evangelical Christianity. What must he think as he finds people praying at the foot of the pole, the cross, or using them in exorcisms, or wearing them around our necks as ornaments, or good luck charms, or as jewel-encrusted status symbols. I'm not saying any of these things necessarily amounts to worshiping the cross, but I've been to some congregations that openly do. Openly. The story of Hezekiah righteously and appropriately destroying that pole and the bronze serpent was not because the Israelites kept it as a remembrance of what happened in the wilderness. That's fine. It was because over time, the pole and that bronze serpent became important objects of worship. This needs to be a flashing yellow light of caution for modern believers because it is an excruciatingly short and dangerous leap from possessing and admiring and looking upon an endearing object that reminds us of our faith and our trust in God to using it as the object of our faith. When that line becomes blurred, the Lord has a name for it. He calls it idolatry. We'll continue chapter 18 next time.